I'm George Mason, host of Good God, Conversations That Matter, about faith and public life. I'm joined today by Rabbi Nancy Kasten, who'll be talking about her sense of call to ministry and her own personal faith journey. Welcome to Good God, Conversations That Matter About Faith and Public Life. I'm George Mason and grateful to welcome you to this program and especially my friend Rabbi Nancy Kasten, who is here uh, to join us in a conversation about her sense of her calling and ministry and how uh, she sees her role in the community and in religious life in Dallas. Nancy, welcome. Thank you so much. Really glad to have you here. So these are uh, things many people wouldn't automatically know, but we've known each other for nearly 30 years now, I guess. And um, uh, they might believe that about me, but not you, right? You know, but uh, it's, we came to Dallas about the same time and uh, our, raised our families and all of that and have known one another. Uh, my wife, Kim, and your husband, David, uh, David Stern, who is also a rabbi and uh, the head rabbi at Temple Emmanuel uh, here in Dallas. We've been friends for years and uh, increasingly over the years, uh, experienced great uh, warm times together. And it's, uh, it's wonderful to be able to share uh, in religious life and personal life in Dallas. But I think people would be uh, really interested to know something about uh, where you are from and how you came to your call as a rabbi. Um, women are increasingly called in Christian church tradition, uh, but the same is probably true among Jews. It's not always been that way, has it? No, it hasn't. I think the first, um, the first woman rabbi was ordained in 1973. Oh my goodness, yeah. Um, so I didn't grow up being exposed to women in the rabbinate right. and um, uh, was only introduced to that idea really um, after college. Okay. And uh, college was in New England? Um, actually, that's when I started heading south of the Mason-Dixon okay. line. I went uh, to Johns Hopkins University oh, right, in Baltimore. Right. Okay, but so grew up in Boston. I did. Right. I, did. I, grew, I grew up in Newton, okay. Massachusetts. Right. Um, and I always say, I probably said this to you before, that you can take the girl out of New England, but you can't take New England out of the girl. So I still uh, have very strong roots there. Well, yeah, I, I like to say that I live in Dallas, but my home is still in New York, you mm -hmm. know? So uh, New York is a similar thing. And your husband, David, is a New Yorker too. And we fight over which baseball team to <laughs> cheer for. And he's a Yankees fan and I'm a Mets fan. And so uh, th those are just things that continue. We're, they're always in us, but it also actually is a little bit challenging, isn't it? That. Uh, there is a sense that when we are in Texas, we are interlopers a bit, uh, that you know, no matter how long we're here, we're not really Texans to some people. Isn't that a challenge? Well, I mean, I think it goes both ways. I think in some ways um, I feel very welcome and part of the community here. Um, and I think in many ways, Southerners are much more openly hospitable and welcoming. Yeah, see, that's the dirty little secret that we Northerners don't like to admit, yeah, isn't it? Yeah, it's true, you know, it's it true. It really is. We, we balkanize in our neighborhoods pretty well, don't we? we yeah, and yeah. I think that um, yeah. I've learned a lot by living here that um, really you can always find your niche if you yeah. um, are willing to maybe go outside of your comfort zone. And of course, I've been here almost 30 years and had three children. Well, and 
um, raise them and, mm -hmm. um, you know, and, and sort of have um, feet in those two places as well as sort of my third foot in Israel a little bit too yes. as, as my, um, my homes of the heart, so. Exactly, we'll talk about Israel a little more later, I hope, but uh, you know, you, you're talking about figuring out what your niche is and that kind of thing. I imagine that uh, being a clergy couple uh, has been part of that challenge, especially because David has served a congregation and you have had a different ministry that you've had to find, uh, as well as tending to family and those sorts of things. We never talk about how David's tending to family too, and I'm <laughs> tending to family. It, it's, it, there's still some latent uh, gender uh, issue about that, isn't there? Uh, maybe not so latent. Yeah. I think that, um, no, Pretty I mean, obvious. I, yeah. I, yeah, yeah, I think um, that as aware as I was of my own, um, you know, ambition and the fact that David and I had exactly the same education and coming out of the gate after rabbinical school had similar opportunities, um, you know, my, my desire to ha be engaged in family life in uh, a meaningful way and um, to be connected to my children in all the ways that they needed just took me in a different, you know, a different direction. Mm -hmm. um, and they were all my choices, but looking back on it, they were very gender determined right, choices right, for right. sure. Yeah. So you have been a chaplain. Uh, you served as a chaplain at SMU, uh, Jewish life. And, and that's a very interfaith, multi-faith, ecumenical sort of world. What was your ministry experience there through those years? Uh, I think that was it was a it was a fantastic experience. You know, I worked with um, Will Finnan, mm -hmm. who was the chaplain to the university right. at the time. Um, my immediate predecessor as the associate chaplain was Bob Cooper. Mm -hmm. You know, kind of a civil rights and right. um, human rights champion, mm -hmm. still mm -hmm. going strong. Mm -hmm. I taught spiritual wellness at SMU with Bill McIlvaney, oh my another goodness, incredible. Like Bill McIlvaney. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So exactly. I was so fortunate to come to SMU. Right. I started in 1990 and um, was there through 2002. And, mm -hmm. um, you know, we really worked hard to create an interfaith um, forum where different groups could be represented and help help each other understand where we were coming from faith-wise. Right. And it was a time when SMU was um, really trying to broaden its appeal to people of different faiths. It had been very much associated with the Methodist Church and they right. really had a intention to mm -hmm. um, to be more ecumenical. They changed their name from officially and yes. all their logos from Southern Methodist University to SMU, to SMU right, right. while I was there. And yeah. Ken Pai was the president of the right. university, really right. wanted to increase the numbers of Jewish students. So right. it was a very welcoming time for me on campus. Mm -hmm. And I got to know, I actually, one of my um, partners in work at the time was Eric Folkerth. And oh, we continue to work Our together today, yes. back together and Pastor doing, of North Haven United mm -hmm. Methodist, yes. So you know, Good. just a great start. And and a lot of the reason why we stayed in Dallas, David Good. and I, because I had my start, you know, going back to your question about the gender roles, right. I started at SMU before we had kids. And okay. I have a different name than David, and yeah. I had my own identity. Sure. And um, as we, you know, started having children, and 
I started pulling back a little more on my work and my work changed, um, I realized that I had a, a standing in the community that was based on my work, um, independent mm -hmm. from David, and I, mm -hmm. that was and that meant a lot. So, Good. how have uh, well, I suppose that probably was one of the, the the best ways for you to figure out how to negotiate the role of being a spouse of uh, the head rabbi in in a large congregation too, which carries with it all sorts of other. Um, expectations from people and uh, whatnot. I, I know Kim, my wife, uh, as you know, has had to figure out how to navigate those waters. Uh, did having this other ministerial identity uh, help strengthen your hand in that regard as well? Well, that helped. I mean, there were a lot of things that helped. First of all, Temple Emmanuel, I mean, almost surprisingly, being in Dallas, was mm -hmm. one of the first congregations to hire a woman rabbi. Right, Shelley right. Zimmerman hired... Um, Debbie Robbins, or no, was that um, that? Ellen, um, oh, I can't oh, believe Oh, Ellen, I'm, yeah. Uh -huh. This is really embarrassing. Oh, Ellen, forgive her. Yes, because forgive Because we're um, over 50 now, sorry. Yeah, yeah. Okay. well over. Okay, well, anyway, okay. and then Liza Stern. Yes. And then Debbie and Robbins. And then Debbie, okay. And I, I came yeah. before Debbie. Came, okay. Uh, one year <laughs> before Debbie. I mean, David, uh -huh. um, David was ordained, and then I was ordained a year later, and then mm -hmm. Debbie was ordained a year after that. Okay. So, yeah. um, so Temple Emmanuel has had a history of um, have you know women right. in the in right. the pulpit from the very beginning, and that meant that they knew that there were clergy whose spouses were not going to be engaged in True. the same way. And True. as in in addition. The, even the senior rabbis at Temple Emanuel, their wives always had their independent interests, mm -hmm. and they didn't have a history of that strong Rebbitzin, you know, yes. you know, rabbi's wife right. Um, right. Um, presence yeah. in, that uh, many congregations have. I, I think part of it in your congregation and Lewis, in ours, Ellen Lewis, Ellen Lewis. Thank you. <laughs> Got it. Okay, terrific. I, I, the, the, because they're larger congregations, I think, and more urban, um, that more professional, I think people uh, have been able to figure out how to let people have their own identities and their own roles. But it was yeah. very unusual. I yeah. mean, because Dallas, 30 years ago, well, wasn't prog progressive, right? Right. <laughs> right. I mean, right. and um, so, so in many ways, it was really far ahead of its time. Wilshire actually started ordaining women to the ministry in about 1990 uh, also, and uh, people would be interested probably to know that one of, one of our female staff members, uh, ministers on our staff, uh, Tiffany Wright and Debbie Robbins are great friends, mm -hmm. uh, and they actually have a women's clergy group that they started years ago to help um, nurture women clergy in the, in the area and support them. Right, yeah. and there are so many more now. I yeah. mean, right. just well, it's exciting, and I think you know there, there's a tremendous gain for all of our congregations and our religious traditions when we realize that there's not a hierarchy of gender uh, in creation that makes one closer to God than another. That the text of Genesis that talks about God created them male and female. Uh, is uh, on a par. I mean, there's an equality there, and that uh, when we uh, create those hierarchies, uh, what we're doing is reflecting the brokenness of creation, not the uh, original blessing of it, isn't it? 
Yes, and I also think that you know we have um, prioritized certain tasks and certain roles mm -hmm. and made them more valuable because yes. they earn more money yes. versus not earning money. You know, right. the social capital versus right. monetary capital right. um, imbalance, and I think yes. that that has confused things some some as well. So. Right. Right. Um, I think that men and women are equally capable, both of the nurturing and um, uh, home building aspects of a life, as well as the right. income generating and right. sustainable economic sustainability. It's of a not life. really a compliment to. Uh, our communities of faith when we say that we, we we need more women to help us be more compassionate and we need more men to keep us on task or some such thing because actually we need more men to learn to be compassionate and we need to recognize the initiative and creativity of women uh, to do certain things. It's about learning that balance and, and not just again gender stereotyping uh, values and qualities uh, in those ways, right? Mm -hmm. So Absolutely. Wonderful. Well, I, I think I, what I really like to do is, is pursue some uh, conversation with you about your sense of call originally to ministry and uh, to find out what some of the language in your faith tradition is about that. And we'll talk about mine as well. And then uh, something of the role of Israel in your life too. So uh, let's take a pause here for a moment and we'll uh, hear about one of our partners who are, who's doing good in the community. The North Texas Food Bank is a local nonprofit focused on hunger relief. Right here in North Texas, there are more than 800,000 food insecure people. That means these folks don't always know when or from where their next healthy meal may come. Each day, the North Texas Food Bank Feeding Network provides access to more than 190,000 meals for hungry children, seniors, and families. While the food bank is making great strides to meet the need for food assistance, much work remains to be done to ensure that all hungry neighbors are fed. You can get involved and ensure that hungry kids are able to access the nutrition they need to thrive. Donate food. Healthy food items like peanut butter and canned tuna are always appreciated. Donate funds. Did you know when you donate a dollar, it provides access to three meals? Donate your time. Roll up your sleeves and come volunteer with the North Texas Food Bank. Donate your voice. Tell our elected officials that the issue of hunger matters. Visit ntfb.org to get involved. Good God with George Mason salutes the vital services provided to our community by the North Texas Food Bank. Nancy, when we talk about call to ministry in uh, our Christian tradition. Well, there's many traditions of Christians, as you know, but uh, some, sometimes we just use that language as if um, maybe we heard an audible voice, right? And uh, it said, George, uh, what I want you to do with your life is to be a minister. Sometimes we actually use even more um, challenging language almost scary language about uh, surrendering to the ministry. I, I've always wondered if you know, that meant I had a gun to my head or <laughs> if I was supposed to put my hands up. You know, and, but but the, there's something about um, the way we talk about call to ministry that 
is almost um, uh, on the suggestion that you probably shouldn't ever want to do this, but maybe you'll give in to it if you feel enough uh, like God is making you somehow or you can't do anything else. Um, I, I've kind of rebelled against that a little bit through my <laughs> life where I've, I've thought, you know, if, if God sort of made me a certain way, maybe that was for a purpose and this is a, the best way to fulfill that. And it's okay to volunteer for this if you enjoy it and like it. Uh, but what, what's your experience and what's the, what kind of language did you grow up with and how did you uh, learn to discern your call to ministry? Well, um you just made me remember that when I first told my parents that I was going to become a rabbi, my mother asked me what kind of job that was for a nice Jewish girl. There you go. Okay. So, uh -huh. um, but you know, in part, again, it was very new for yes. women to become rabbis. Sure. And I think that, um, you know, the word rabbi means teacher. Mm -hmm. And um, in Judaism, there is, there, I don't, there's the the calling come to comes to people like prophets and prophecy mm -hmm. ended a long time ago. You know we don't mm -hmm. have prophets anymore. So um, well, maybe we can reinterpret that. <laughs> yeah. So you know it's more about finding the the you know what you were meant to do. Yeah. You know that you piece go. of the puzzle that right. makes mm -hmm. everything else work. Mm -hmm. And um, Judaism, you know, we talk about Judaism being um, based in three areas. God, Torah, meaning study, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and not just Torah like the scripture, but right. Torah as in e ever evolving study. Yes. Um, not just even Jewish study, but all study of this is the Torah way, too, mm -hmm, right? Is what, what we learning. say sometimes, right? Exactly. Yes. Uh -huh. um, life lessons and yes. all of that, and then there's Israel, which is yes. not originally thought about as the, just the people Israel or just the land Israel, but it's um, a combination and, and, and the people more than anything, right? Okay. Mm -hmm. The only place that Judaism can be lived out in its fullest form as described in the Hebrew Bible is in the land, right? Yeah. But, but Israel is a, um, uh, a source of Jewish identity and the, one of the legs of the three-legged stool of Judaism mm -hmm. Um, that stands mm -hmm. in relation to the land, but you know Israel is 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 more than the land. So, right, right. so God, Torah, and Israel are the three legs. And, and I think, let me interrupt you and ask: How does that relate to the rabbinic um, redefinition of Israel after the fall of Jerusalem? That uh, was sort of prayer, study, and deeds of loving kindness. Is it, is there a relationship? I can see sort of the God and Torah there. How do, is it the peoplehood, is it the relationship to others that is named Israel that connects with all of that? Well, it's all connected. Um, the prayer and um, acts of, good, of, of kindness um, are ways to, rep I mean, they're basically rep repairing. repairing. The world. Right. Um, they're right. ways to atone right. for right. things that we've done that right. are mm -hmm not working out so well, right. either for us or for others. Mm -hmm. um, so I think it's in actually in the Zohar that these three, God, Torah, and Israel are described okay. as um, being the three legs. And, and certainly um, the 
persistence of Israel even in the diaspora is right. a sign that um, that God is still with the people. Right, right, even right. Even outside of the land. So Israel is just laden with so many levels of meaning, isn't it? Yeah. It is, and it, that's yeah. a whole other discussion, yes, especially yes. in today's you know political climate right. and uh, and in today's um, climate of you know the whole conflagration of anti-Semitism, anti-Zionism. Right. Um, Jews haven't figured it out either. Right. Oh, that's a <laughs> um, relief to hear because we certainly haven't as Christians. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So. Okay, good. And I remember actually when we were in Israel together, yes. you were talking about all of us, yes. Baptists and Jews together, right. being part of Israel and, and the call right. to, yes. you know, to the greater Israel. Right, so this is something that I think many people don't understand about um, the, the Christian faith because when you're in a dominant religious culture, the tendency is to think that you have um, replaced or succeeded all that came before you. And every time Christians have done that in the history of our faith, uh, seeking to somehow claim supremacy or to have succeeded Judaism, we, we have lost touch with our real identity, which always goes through Jesus, who was a Jew, never actually was a Christian, you know, Jesus never became a Christian. Uh, and uh, and uh, the, the, the rootedness of the Jewishness from which we come, the, even Paul, who gets um, you know, criticized for having changed uh, the faith into Christianity uh, almost single-handedly, still talks about how we are like a wild uh, olive shoot that has been grafted in to the root mm -hmm. of Judaism. So uh, there is a sense in which our proper sense of identity as the church must remain moored to our um, sister, well, maybe it's our mother religion, uh, that, and we should honor our mother, uh, which is uh, Judaism, which I think part of that is, is what we've learned to do together, isn't mm. it? Yeah, For sure, and to appreciate, I mean, um, I really do think, and going back to that question of, you know, where was my call, where did my yes. calling come from? I mean, right. um, I see now that, you, so so I was really drawn to the people. I, yes. I spent time okay. in Israel, um, I was an exchange student in, right. in my junior year of high school, okay. so I hadn't been anywhere. You yeah. know, I, right. I was 16 years old, I'd never traveled right. anywhere, and I got plucked up and put in this country that doesn't, in 1976 didn't look anything like it looks today. Isn't you know? that the truth, um, yes. It was not looking like the Western right. Mecca that it does today right. in any way. Um, and I had an experience of six months in that place and felt so connected to uh -huh. not just the land, which I did feel very connected to the land, but to the people who uh -huh. were very different than I was from, uh -huh. I lived with a family who originally was from Kurdistan. They ate yes. things that were totally alien to me. Right, right. Um, you know, the way of life was so different. My, right. you know, everything about it was so different and yet this was my people. And, right. you know, so that I think was the origin of my connection. Right. And from there, I think it grew into that idea of Torah that I really thought that the teachings of the Jewish okay. people were, um, uh -huh insightful and meaningful and right. gave me personal grounding in an identity that I could 
um, live live a, a purposeful life from. Right. Um, and then it's only actually been in later in my life and long after I was ordained as a rabbi that I started really um, exploring the more spiritual aspects of the faith. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which I think almost any Christian minister would say worked in uh, in theory in the opposite direction, right? You know that we had first this experience with God in some some sense that then led us to study and then to serving the people, you might say. But maybe if we were really honest about it. The way we came to all of those experiences was not that different. We experienced God somehow in the mystery of human relationships and communities of meaning and that it, it drove us then to try to interpret and understand that and then answer what call came to us. We maybe understood that we were being called because we were part of those communities. Do you experience. think that's true for you? I think it might be, you know, I, I think it's you see, this is why these conversations are important, <laughs> isn't it? Yeah. I mean, really, this is part of what we're discovering, isn't it? That if we break out of our echo chambers and realize um, that God is at work in other people's lives in ways that become for us a mirror, uh, that we interpret our own experiences by these relationships. Yeah, and I think, you know, I'm thinking back to our previous conversation, and um, I think one of the things that's challenging about being married to another rabbi is that mm -hmm. people, peop, well, or even being a member of any clergy in the Western world, people mm -hmm. ascribe this sense of connection to God and calling by God to us, mm -hmm. even if that's not the source of our sense of calling, right? Right, right, right. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, there, uh, there, there is a desire for there to be, in our experience, something unique from everybody else's experience, isn't there? I mean, a religious leader has to have a unique vocational story, right? Um, but, um, but, it, but it may be that um, it, it, we're robbing uh, lay people, you might say, of the meaningfulness of their own spiritual experience by segregating ourselves over here and pretending that we have this unique uh, role. And maybe um, it, it would be more helpful to everyone, the peoplehood of God, if we saw our ministry in the world as being a vocation, whatever well, it is. Well, I think, I think I do. I think, mm -hmm. I, I do mm -hmm. think that, um, and, and if you think about it, like think about the doctors who you've loved or the lawyers mm -hmm. who have right. helped you or the teacher or, right. I mean, those are callings, right? right? They right. really are. And, um, and Bar Barbara Brown Taylor is one of America's great preachers, that I'm sure you know, and she, she wrote a book called um, An Altar in the World in which she made this case, you know, that we, uh, our altars for all of our vocations are in the world and they may be a desk uh, for a teacher or they may be a, 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 a place at the bar for a, a, a lawyer or a judge or uh, they may be a, a pulpit or it may be, you know, a kitchen sink. Uh, whatever the case may be, there is an altar for everyone to do their ministry on. Mm -hmm. So it's exactly. a beautiful thought. Well, you mentioned Israel, and we um, have been to Israel together, and that's been really a lot of fun, and we are actually planning to do that again this fall. I know, I know. So, yeah, what, what, we're 
close to getting it all finalized. <laughs> We've been working hard on that. So I suppose we could say to some people, if uh, there's room for you, um, give us a call and we'll see if, uh, if there's a spot yes. uh, for the trip. But that's going to be a beautiful experience. We, I, I have the feeling that it's just not as useful to me to do a, a trip to the Holy Land that is uh, just a Christian trip. The, the land doesn't belong to any one person or when any one religious group. It's such a remarkably diverse place. And we learn so much more about our faith when we are with people who share that land. Well, and I think um, that it is really uh, dangerous anywhere mm. to enter into an experience with our own narrative mm -hmm. and to look for um, the signs of our nar of that narrative being reinforced, right? Right. right. Um, without opening our eyes up to the other narratives that mm -hmm. did and are and will play themselves out in that same experience or that same place. So all the more so in Israel, where yes. there are so many competing narratives from the past and now from in the present. And if we're going to ever get to some different kind of future for that part of the world, we're going to have to start seeing each other's narratives. And so, you know, going, you know, I've start, I, I really love Israel and I feel very committed to showing that love through experiences that really try to help people see different right. narratives. Well, and I love doing it with you, and we'll look forward to that together. Thank you for sharing uh, something of your spiritual journey with us and your ministry. Uh, love the conversation. Good God, it's, we're underway. Thank Glad you, Glad to George. have you as a guest. Bless you. Thanks so much. Okay, good. Good God is created by Dr. George Mason, produced and directed by Jim White. Our guest coordinator and communications director is Jay Pritchard. Here's grateful appreciation to Evolve Technology for location production facilities. Evolve Technology for home audio, video, and lighting design. Enjoy more, think less with Evolve. See their great work at EvolveDallas.com. Thanks to Wendy Crispin Caterer for guest parking accommodations. Good God, Conversations with George Mason is the podcast devoted to bringing you ideas about God and faith and the common good. All material copyright 2018 by Faith Commons.